Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. I want to say this too. It's been a it's been a fun week. I had the joy of going with uh, Triumphant Quartet. I don't know if you know who they are, but they're a rock and roll band in the life of our church. It's a Southern Gospel group, and um, the men are are in the life of our church. They're some of our elders and our deacons, and I just love them. and And we got to go over to Billy Graham's Cove over there in Asheville. And it's a huge training center that he built there. And, and I got the joy to preach the gospel. Now, I want to I say this, and I, I told the guys this. I said, honestly, you could, uh, you could put a donkey on that stage, and that donkey could preach the pain off the wall. It just feels like it's, it's holy ground. But here's what I was reminded of as we were there. And God began to move in the lives of those who were there. I got to see people who were in the later, in the latter days of their lives, give their heart and their life to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something. God, when he wants to move, God will move. God desires it. God wants it. And I guess the question for us this morning is, are you ready for him to move in your heart and your life? This morning, not some other morning, not necessarily for somebody else, but are you ready? Do you want it? Do you want him to move in your heart and your life today? I don't, I don't know about you, but I, I'm ready. I want it. I need it. We are finishing up our series of messages in the, in the book of Jonah called When God Said Go, and Jonah Said No. And we've been in six, this will be the sixth uh, message in our series. And I tell you what, I've enjoyed our time, and here's what it's allowed me to do. It's allowed me to come to the place where I've uncovered and I've seen the Jonah in me. And I think as you study the book of Jonah, you're going to find that there's a whole lot of Jonah in you, that tendency to run and rebel against God's call in our life. And we've been in here for six messages, and today is the last of these messages, and I have some sad news for you. Ready? It doesn't end well for our boy Jonah. It just don't end well for him this morning. Hey, talk about stories that don't end well. Uh, you know, sometimes I have young kids, so I'm in the young kid world, right? That's my life right now. I have three little girls and a little boy, and so that's my world. And we, we tell nursery rhymes all the time, but talk about stories that don't end well. Some of these nursery rhymes end really bad. Now, here's what I need your help with, church family. You ready? Jack and Jill, come on, to what? And Jack did what? And that's it. I don't even know what a crown is, but it sounds painful, right? And so you have this nursery rhyme that literally leaves you and I with two children with head injuries on a hillside. And to the best of my knowledge, they're still there. Nobody came and helped them. This story didn't end well. I think of one of our favorites, and that's the, the five little monkeys jumping on the bed. One fell. Come on. Mama called it. But did mama listen? The remaining of her children, after one is mortally wounded, are back up on the bedroom. At some point, your parenting comes into question. When you lose all of your children to jumping on the bed. I think those children, the story did not end well. You know, church family, honestly, as I look into Jonah chapter four, I find a story that doesn't end well. And this morning, as we kind of, we're gonna cover the whole chapter this morning. As we go there, I want us to begin to examine our story. 
And I want us to look at how the truth is, is that whether it's Jonah's story, my story, or yours, our stories are easily derailed by selfishness, by bitterness, and by forgetfulness. And we see this played out in the entire chapter four of Jonah's story. Hey, listen, don't you just wish sometimes it stopped at chapter three? (laughs) A great revival has broken out. God has moved. And that's the last we see of Jonah. There's no more chapters, but, but unfortunately and sadly for Jonah, there is a chapter four. And maybe, just maybe today, you and I can learn what it is to live our story out in such a way that we end in chapter three for your life and for your life and my life. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to recap where we've been, just in case this is your first, your guess, this is your first uh, message in this series. Here's where we've been, Jonah chapter one. We hear from Jonah, we hear from the Lord that God has called him to preach a message to the Ninevites. Jonah hated them. He was a Hebrew. That was not his people. They were his enemy. He wanted nothing to do with them. And we watched in astonishment. As God says, Jonah, I want you to go 500 miles this way and preach to the Ninevites as Jonah takes off in the exact opposite direction. Well, we follow Jonah to the shores of Joppa. There we see he get his billfold out. He's there at a port city in a port. And there he pays the fare, he buys the tickets aboard a Phoenician ship. The destination of that vessel is 2,500 miles away. Listen, the furthermost point in the ancient Mediterranean world from Nineveh is the very boat Jonah is getting on to travel to. We walked with him as he went into the belly of that ship. To our amazement, he fell asleep and is running from God. We began to feel the boat begin to rock. We heard the the rain beat against the timbers. We felt the wind as it beat against the, the sails. It would take a pagan captain to go into the belly of that boat to wake the prodigal prophet of God and call him to pray. Well, Jonah gets up on deck and we travel with him. The rain blinding us, the wind pounding against us, And the pagan crew does what only they know how to do, and that is they begin to cast lots to see whose sin it was that was the responsibility of this storm that was threatening to break up their ship. You see, God had hurled, as a warrior does his spear, God had hurled this storm to grab Jonah's attention and to do business with Jonah's rebellion. And they wanted to know whose fault it was. Well, God exposed Jonah's sin there on the deck. And as we begin to listen to Jonah, proudly he would state, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord God. And the questions begin to cloud our mind. You you worship him, yet you're running from him. This doesn't make sense. What you say looks nothing like how you're living. This just doesn't make sense. And in shock, we listen as Jonah would say, hey, listen, if you want this storm to stop, throw me into the water. And we watched as heroically the crew decided to try to spare Jonah's life. And so they begin to row with everything they had toward the shore. But God would not have it that way. Why? Because the crew could not save Jonah from Jonah. Only God could save Jonah from Jonah. And so the wind continued. And the crew reluctantly and heavy-hearted threw him overboard. We watched as a 
worship service broke out on the deck of that boat as the clouds cleared, as the wind died down and the sea was calm. A pagan crew began to worship the one true God. But we also were heartbroken as Jonah dipped below the surface of the sea. And in chapter two, forever etched into history is the prayer of Jonah to God to save him. And we watch as Jonah at the point of death, as he is drowning, is saved as God appointed a great fish to swallow him up. Three days he sat there in tomb until God saw fit to spit him out about the shore and commanded the fish to do so. And then we go on into chapter three And Jonah, with revival nearly set in on his heart, went from disobedience to God to a new obedience to God, went into the city and he preached the word of God. And God began to move so much so that even the king turned to the one true God. They fasted and they repented and God moved across the city. If only it would have ended there. But in chapter four, we kind of begin to see Jonah's story unravel. And it's heartbreaking to watch, but let's take a look in on Jonah chapter four, verse one. But watch what the Bible says. As Jonah sat and watched all that God was doing in the city, but to Jonah, all that God was accomplishing it seemed very wrong. And he became angry. You know what that phrase became angry literally translates to? He became hot. Have you ever been so mad you were just hot? Like you were just, you know, been in traffic somewhere. Somebody did something ungodly. Man, you just, no. Somebody say something to you or say something about your kid. Better eat your grandkids. Just in a rut. Man, he becomes literally hot. You see, what happens is Jonah begins to elevate his wisdom and his understanding above the very sovereignty and the grace of God. And what he does here is he begins to credit God with wrongdoing. And I'm going to tell you, his story is beginning to struggle. I love what one author said. He said, Jonah finds that the time fuse does not work on the prophetic bomb that he planted in Nineveh. And I'm telling you what, Jonah's having a hard time here. What pleased God displeased Jonah. And I want to say something to you, church. You ready? If what pleases God displeases you and me, our story is beginning to come undone. Our ending is not ending up very well. You know, we may question God at times of great pain, at times of great hurt and great uncertainty, but Jonah has full understanding of the heart of God and the grace of God and has enjoyed it himself. And yet he finds himself disagreeing with God on his decision to extend grace to the Ninevites. You see, we find a selfishness that cares only for Jonah's story and nobody else's. We find a bitterness that is the fermenting of anger and unforgiveness as it seeks to destroy other people. And we find a forgetfulness that forgets the very grace of God that Jonah has seen and experienced time in and time out in his story. He is forgetful of what God has done for him. And listen to me, when selfishness and bitterness and forgetfulness when they begin to become intertwined with our stories. Hear me, our stories begin to struggle and our ending is not 
well. And we see that played out. Look here in verse number two. So Jonah, he prayed to the Lord. Now watch him as he begins to correct God. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall. This is what I tried to stop by fleeing to Tarshish. Hey, by the way, as if he could stop God. He said, this is what I was trying to get at. The real reason Jonah ran, hey, listen, don't be confused. Don't be misled. He ran because of fear, because of uncertainty. And, and listen, from a lack of clarity of God, is that the reason? No. Here's the reason he ran for God. Because of a nationalism and a prejudice that had raised up in his life. That formed this cocktail that mixed together to form a hatred in Jonah that overwhelmed his heart, that overshadowed his life and surpassed his heart, his love and his relationship for the father. He hated them. There was a nationalism in Jonah. Hey, listen, it is of no coincidence that this week we celebrate the birth of our nation in which I love. This is one of my favorite holiday weekends of the year. I just love it. But I want you to hear me when it comes to nationalism you and I are in Christ first and foremost. And I am an American second. I, listen, I am, I'm proud to be an American. I would fight, I would die for my country. I love our country. And there is no other place on the face of this planet that I would raise my children other than the US of A. And I love the United States of America. As for July 4th, 1776, I thank God for the birth of a new nation that would guarantee and grant my freedom. I thank God for his providence in allowing America to be born. But I want you to hear me. I belong to Christ first and foremost. He is my identity. He is my hope. He is my greatest pursuit. Now listen, it's okay to be passionate about your nation, about your country. But such passion must be informed and overshadowed by the passion you and I have for Jesus Christ. His nationalism led him to a prejudice to which he hated the Ninevites. Hey, listen to me. Yes, the Ninevites were the enemy of God's people. Yes, they were ruthless. He hated the people. Every one of them. He hated the entire group. And yet in contrast, we see through the whole book of Jonah, the prophet hated them, but God loved them. The prophet sought to destroy them, but God had compassion on them. Can I say something to his church? When you and I hate someone God loves, our story is struggling. Our story is not ending well. I want you to stop with me just for a moment. And I want us to go back to chapter three. And I want you to look at the message that Jonah preached to the Ninevites. You ready? And let's kind of uncover his heart here. Watch this. In Jonah chapter three, verse four, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now I want us to pick this apart for a minute because this prophetic message is unique to the prophetic messages of God in the Old Testament. Here's why. Number one, who's missing? God's name's not even mentioned. What is the crime by which they were being accused? 
What was the exact punishment? Well, it looks as if they will be overthrown, but hear me, that word overthrown in the Hebrew is ambiguous at best, and it's hard to see exactly what will happen to them. So think of this. You have a prophet of God, a prodigal prophet who's been running from God. Finally, revival hits his heart, and there's this new obedience to the work of God, and yet he goes into a city, and he preaches a message that is the least of what he could say. In the Hebrew language, this message is five words long. And that is the only recorded message that we find of Jonah to the people of Nineveh that God called him to preach to. And you know what I begin to think? Despite all of Jonah's effort to withhold the grace and the goodness of God from the Ninevites, God moved even still. The least of the message he could preach. And yet God brought about a great move that could only be attributed to God. I jotted this down. Hey, isn't it a sad place to be where God is moving around you despite of you? I want to tell you, there's no sadder place than God moving around me and maybe even God using me. But he's doing so despite me. And we see that in the life of Jonah. And watch Jonah's response here. Listen as he cries out to God, I knew that you are gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What he does here is he quotes the words of Exodus chapter 34, verse six. So here's what I begin to see. Jonah has memorized a passage that meant great deal to him, meant a great deal to him. He memorized it, he enjoyed it, but now sitting in the shadow of Nineveh, he weaponizes this scripture with an accusation against God. Jonah's selfishness, his bitterness, his forgetfulness threatens to derail and ruin his story and how his story ends. I love what one author said about Jonah here. He says, Jonah has the right theology, but it's used in the wrong way. It's the prayer of God, forgive me, but destroy them. It's the right theology of forgiveness, but used in the wrong way to destroy people. Look at this in verse three as the story goes. It says, now Lord, Jonah says, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than for me to live. What he's saying, if you're not gonna destroy them, then God, just go ahead and destroy me. Trauma king. Are you noticing that here in, in chapter four? We got a drama king on our hands. And I'm gonna tell you something. When you precipitate drama, when you are a source of drama, when your life is surrounded by drama that you have brought, your story becomes more and more about you and less and less about the Lord. And less and less about the Lord. And our stories begin to unravel. Our stories are in trouble when you are the center of it. And God is not, and his will is not for our life. Look at verse number four. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? And I'm gonna tell you something. If I'm in the kitchen of my house and my kids start going in here, daddy, I want that toy. No, daddy, I'd rather die than not have that toy. You know what I'm gonna do? That's almost spanking territory. That's at least time out. 
I may forbid them dinner for the next three years, right? Like we just don't do that kind of stuff around with my kids in the house, but watch what God does here. And he's so good at it. God deals graciously with Jonah. He deals tenderly with him. Again, showing a concern for Jonah that Jonah withholds from the Ninevites. Literally what he's saying is who are you that you are so angry? Who are you that you are so angry right now? But hear me, church. Jonah is sold to his own selfishness. He is blinded by his own bitterness and he is filled with forgetfulness. I'm gonna tell you, Jack and Jill's story is heading in a whole lot better direction than even Jonah's this morning. Now watch this in verse five. It says, and Jonah had got out and sat down at a place east of the city. This cracks me up. Now, now listen, where should Jonah have been? He should have been inside the city showing them how to love and to worship and to walk with the Lord. He should have been exhausted. His voice ran out because of how much he's preached the very word of God. And yet he goes outside of the city and there he made himself a shelter. He sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Hey, this boy is still holding up in his selfishness, bitterness, and forgetfulness. He's still holding in that maybe, just maybe, God would still destroy them. And he wanted a front row seat to God's destroying the city. He could have lived among them. He could have discipled them. Instead, he gave them a bare minimum of a message and then sat outside hoping to watch the city burn. You know, honestly, I was, uh, I was thinking about this phrase that Jonah went and set up a shelter and how bad we really are trying to take care of things ourselves. I remember Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. They were put outside the garden and they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their sin and shame. And what did God do? God took the life of some animals and clothed them in animal skins to take care of them. He knew what was best. And here Jonah feels as if he could get away and build an old shelter. We were at the, at the beach a couple weeks ago with our students and uh, um, Zach and Ivanka, Zach's our worship leader. He's my brother-in-law. Him and his wife Ivanka have a new little baby and this was one of those first big beach trips for them, okay? And, and now we're four babies in. We've learned a lot about how to survive a beach trip, okay? But, but I'll never forget watching him come down the beach for the first time. And I called Zach and said, man, do you mind if I share this story? Because we laughed about, you okay? No hurt feelings? All right. And I watched, I watched as Zach starts coming down that beachway, you know, the stairs. And literally, they went out and bought the huge shelter. There was a Yeti cooler in there. They not only bought a shelter, but they bought a shelter wall where they could put things in. I mean, they had a beach cart that I believe was motorized, right? And it was just, in their cart alone was about $6.3 million dollars for them and their baby. And I watched as Zach took about eight hours to set everything up, okay? And talk about becoming hot mad, Zach. You were there, weren't you? There's nothing more infuriating than the beach for some reason. Walking there, setting things up, and the walk back is just terrible. But man, everything's set. They're in the shade, man, look good. <laughs> then the wind came. And what took three days to set up in one puff of wind, we saw their shelter lift up in the air, go behind them and break on them. 
And inside, I know it sounds sad, inside my heart, I was laughing so much. I don't know why it brought me great joy. And then I go out in the water and I'm playing out there with the kids and I look over as a gust of wind comes and my shelter lips up off the ground and almost kills 10 people. I mean, and there's nothing I could do. I'm just watching like kids watch closely. This is an act of God here. And I watch as my shelter goes down the beach. You know, I walked away thinking, we are really bad at building shelters. I think of Jonah's shelter that day. And I think of how inadequate it was to protect him from the sun. You know what I begin to think? There is nothing that you and I do in our selfishness, in our bitterness that will ever last or that will ever be adequate enough. There's nothing we can build, no actions we can take, no words we can speak, and yet God steps up. Watch this in verse six. Then the Lord, God provided a leafy plant, in a sense a vine, and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. I, I just don't understand God, how extra mile he's going for Jonah. But you know what? I love how extra mile God goes for me. It don't make sense in my life, nonetheless, in Jonah's story. And watch this. I love what one author noted. He said, God provided a vine to give the prophet shade that his crude shelter could not provide. The God of the sea who would provide a great fish to swallow Jonah is also the God of the land and provides vegetation. God is using an object lesson here to expose the selfishness, the bitterness, the forgetfulness of his prophet. God would take the object of Jonah's affection. You ready? What was the object of his affection? His own comfort. And would contrast it to the objects of God's affection. And that is the concern for people whom he created. But look at this at verse seven. And I love God. And I love how he plays out in our stories. Watch this. But at dawn of the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so it withered. Like insult to injury here, but God was using an object lesson to teach Jonah. Around my house, uh, we have a lot of books, but there is one book that I love above anything else. You ready? It's this guy's book. You ready? The Hungry Caterpillar. I love this, um, this book. It starts out this way, you ready? In the light of the moon lay a little egg on a leaf. And it's the entire stories about this very hungry caterpillar, this very hungry worm. I wanna read just a little bit of it to you so you understand what this worm was made to do. It says, one Sunday morning, the worn sun came up and pop! Out of the egg came a tiny and a very hungry caterpillar. Now watch this. He started to look for some food. And on Monday, he ate through one apple and was still hungry. And on Tuesday, he ate through two pears and was still hungry. And on Wednesday, he ate through three plums and was still hungry. And on Thursday, he ate through five strawberries, four strawberries, and he was still hungry. And on Friday, he ate through oranges. And it goes on and on and on of what he ate. And all of a sudden, this hungry caterpillar has a bellyache. And so you know what he goes back to doing? He went and ate a leaf. It was designed for him to eat and his belly rested. Then he goes and he builds a, a cocoon around himself. And the story ends, and I love this, 
with this beautiful picture of what the caterpillar becomes. And it's a big, beautiful butterfly. When we read to our girls, we yell this part. We know it's coming, but we yell this part together. He got a point in this story, in this object lesson, a worm to eat away at the very comfort that Jonah had so relied on as he sat on that hillside waiting for the city to be destroyed. So really, is God trying to get us to to understand that the worm is the biggest part of the story? No, the worm symbolizes something far greater as does the leaf that is used as a shelter over the head of of Jonah. See, here's the problem. The worm is a picture of an enemy. An enemy who tries to hurt God by destroying his creation and by ruining your story and mine, your ending and mine. And it's a strategy of this worm all throughout history. Here's the game plan. Watch it in scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter four. The God of this age, meaning the devil, the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is in the very image of God. The worm here and the object lesson that God is using with Jonah is the very enemy of himself who has worked to blind the Ninevites of their need and of their desires for God. It's what he did back here in Jonah chapter four. And church, I want you to hear me. It's the very tactic of our enemy today. He is working to blind those around us to the joy of the gospel and the good news of God and his love for us. That leaf that God provided over Jonah's head, it was the Ninevites. Jonah didn't make that grow. What God created that vine. God made it grow. It's a reminder that God created the Ninevites and even despite their sin, that God loved them and there was an enemy after them, the worm, the enemy himself. And watch what it says here as this plays out in verse number eight. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Man, listen, his story is unraveled. Chapter three is far in the distance. But in verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I am so angry that I wish I were dead. Hear me, church. Again, all of this for Jonah is about Jonah. His care for his own comfort surpassed any concern for people who were made in the image of God. Selfishly, he wants Nineveh destroyed. Bitterly, he can't stand that God hasn't done it yet. And forgetfully, he has forgotten how God has acted lovingly, compassionately, and kindly to Jonah, even in his own sin and running and rebellion. But watch this, as the story continues and ends. But the Lord said this to Jonah, you have been so concerned about this plan, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died. And watch this. And so should I not have concern, God says to Jonah, for the great city of Nineveh, what are you saying? They're my creation. I love them. You've not cared for them, but I have. You hate them, but I love them. And there's a worm, there's an enemy who's blinded them to me. But I want them. Do I? 
I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people? And, and some people believe because this is Hebrew Old Testament that he's just numbering the men here. There could be as many as 600,000 people with women and children in Nineveh. And he says, who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand because they have been blinded spiritually. They are spiritually lost is what he's saying. And also many animals. Hey, in church, that's how the book ends. Uniquely with a question of God that goes unanswered by the prophet Jonah. There is no response of him recorded. And I, I wrote this down. I wonder if it's because Jonah was lost to his own selfishness, bitterness, and forgetfulness that God shuts off his voice for the rest of history. Because Jonah... His story was done. His ending was over. And his story did not end well. I begin to think about our stories. And one of the questions that I have is that of God to Jonah. Should God not care or have concern for Sevierville? For your spouse? For your children? For your family? For your community? For the world, should God not have concern even over your enemy and my enemy? You see, selfishness makes our story about us and leaves no room for God. Bitterness weaponizes anger and unforgiveness to destroy people. Forgetfulness fails to recognize, fails to celebrate and live in the goodness and the grace that the Lord has given to us all. And this is where Jonah's story becomes undone. You might say, well, hey, Pastor Anthony, last week you talked that revival came to Jonah's heart, a new obedience. What happened between chapter three and chapter four? Well, the very thing that threatens revival in all of us, selfishness and bitterness and forgetfulness. Billy Sunday was asked, he was a great evangelist. He was asked by a lady who came up to him and says, why do you keep having revivals? <laughs> I love this. Why do you keep having revivals when it doesn't last? And Billy looked at her and said, why do you keep taking baths? Because you need it. Because you and I need revival. Why? Because we need the Lord. We need him to breathe life in the dark places and the dying places of our hearts and our lives. But we also need revival because there are many people even to this day who are living in Nineveh. Well, look at this picture, if you would. I don't know if you've been around the church for very long, but this is, a, this is something called the 1040 window. Has anybody ever heard of the 1040 window of the world? Yeah. Hey, listen, this is an area geographically of our planet that is 10 degrees north to 40 degrees north in latitude. Watch this. This is an area of our world where the most unreached people live in concentration. It's called the 1040 window. Let me give you um, some figures from here. You ready? Uh, approximately over 5 billion people live in this area. That is 8,700 different distinct people groups in just this one area you see highlighted here. It's called the 1040 window. Now of these, 
nearly 6,000 of these people groups are considered unreached and have a population of 3.1 billion. Listen to me. There are 3.1 billion people within this rectangle on our planet that are considered unreached, meaning this, they don't know Jesus and they've never heard the gospel. Over 3 billion people live here. You know what's amazing about this? In what is modern day Iraq? Do you know what's in that rectangle? Ancient Nineveh. The enemy is still blinding eyes to this day in this part of the world to the gospel. And I want you to hear me. God loves and cares for the billions of people who are here. Uh, this past week, um, our staff and I, we uh, met with a great guy. He's got a young family and uh, they serve right now, right smack dab in the middle of that 1040 window. He has moved his family, his children have been born overseas in the heart of the Middle East, in a Muslim nation, and a very persecuted part of the world. And we sat at a table with him this past week, and we just listened to his stories. Why? Because God has given me a heart for this, this rectangle. Do you know that 90 plus percent of the missionaries of this world are concentrated in places outside of that rectangle? Think of that. The majority of missionaries that are sent out across the world, the majority of them are not doing work where the greatest amount of lost people exist. They're not doing work in Nineveh. Now we praise God for the work they are doing. They are doing incredible work. But I'll tell you what, as Pastor Connect Church, man, I wanna, I wanna get inside that rectangle where people, it's hard, but people need Jesus. We sat and listened to his story and he began to share with me about how it seems as, Almost every time you look around, there will be a Muslim who will have seen a vision of someone in white on their rooftop or will have had a dream of someone in white coming to them and quoting verses and, and they're very confused because all they know is the Quran and all they know is, is that of Muhammad. But this, this man is different. And this missionary told us that, that time and time again, it seemed as if they would have the vision and they would come in contact, even in one of the most persecuted rectangles in all the planet geographically, they would come in contact with a Christian. And they would look at that Christian and go, hey, wait a second, my, my faith can't explain this dream. C could you tell me what this dream means? And he shared stories that Christians would begin to share scripture and that the Muslim would look at him and go, that's exactly what he said to me. That's it, that's exactly what he said. And this young family, under the guise of business, is working in the middle of this rectangle in Nineveh. And he's watching Muslim after Muslim give their heart and their life to Jesus. And I'm gonna tell you how incredible that is. You ready? They could lose their life for doing so. And yet they are coming to faith and trust in Jesus. You know what we're going to do, Connect Church? We're going to have their back. Your generosity is going to help support 
this missionary whose name I can't speak publicly to you, whose region in the world they're serving, I cannot tell you their city. I'm flying there in October. As I end my Israel trip, I'm gonna fly over into this nation and I'm gonna spend time and we're gonna begin a partnership where we are gonna send teams, small teams over and we're gonna minister the gospel with this. Why, you ready? Because this segment of the world, especially the Middle East, oftentimes in our nationalism and our prejudice, we say, oh, you know what? They're just a bunch of terrorists. They're, they're just, they're given to Islam. There's nothing we could do. But as Anthony and I have even talked, as he's been over to other parts of the world, hear me, there are people, the majority of which, who are good people, who are living their lives to make their lives better for their family. And hear me, above all, they were created and loved by God. Even if they live in Nineveh, even if they live in the 1040 window. And we're gonna go and we are going to get their back. Because you know what? You wanna know how I know that God loves me? You ready? Because he loves them. That's how I know he loves me. And so what is the challenge? Chris, you go, listen, we've been all over the place. It ends bad for Jonah, but how does my story, how does my story end strong in Jesus? How can I protect my story from ending bad? You ready? Here's the challenge I have. You ready? Every mom and dad, every grandparent, every single, every student, every college student out there, I want you to hear me. Here's the challenge for you today. You ready? End well. Live today in light that your story will come to an end on this earth one day. The decisions you make today will dictate how your story ends on the day that the Lord calls you home. You ready? Here's three things. Make your story about Jesus and not about you. Jonah made his story all about him and it wrecked him. Hey, believer, Make your story about Jesus, not about you. Anthony, how do I do that? Well, listen how Jesus teaches us. Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Make your story about Jesus. Hey, number two, let go of bitterness and love what God loves most. And that's all people. I'm gonna tell you, it takes a whole lot of work to be mad at somebody. Don't it? Bitterness takes a whole lot of work. It burns a whole lot of energy. Keeping tabs on everything everybody's ever done to you. It's like drinking poison and expecting it to kill the other person. Let go of bitterness. And love what God loves the most, and that's people. Listen to how Paul would teach in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. And how can I forgive my enemy? Because God has forgiven the enemy in me. Never forget what God has done for you. And here's the reason why. Because God wants to do the very same in the lives of other people. Never forget what God has done for you. Exodus 34, six, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. Hey, can I ask you something, church? Aren't you grateful that he is compassionate with you? 
Hey, aren't you grateful that he is gracious? He gives to you and I what we don't deserve. Hey, aren't you grateful he's slow to anger when we're stubborn? Aren't you grateful that he abounds in love and that he is faithful despite our unfaithfulness? Are you ready? Never forget what God has done for you. And always remember that God wants to do that for other people as well, even our enemies. I had a youth worker, his name is Willard. He works with TVA, he's out there on the lake and all these weekends, we'll probably see him this weekend. Great guy, love his family. When I first started serving there as youth pastor, he would write me emails, sometimes letters, um, he would text me, and he always had a closing statement he would make before he signed his name. And here's what he would say. Longing to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant, Willard. Everything. I could say, hey, Willard, how's the weather? Great. Longing to hear, well done, thy good and thy faithful servant. He's quoting Matthew chapter 25, verse 23, where Jesus would look at his servant on the day they would go home and say, well done. You know, in just a few minutes, I'm going to send you out. And you know what, as I send you out, here's what I want to send every believer out with this thought. I wonder if I could send us out longing to hear from the Lord, well done, thy good and thy faithful servant. You know, I don't think that that's said of every believer. Corinthians talks about those who get to heaven as those escaping the flames. But I tell you what, as my story plays out, as through his spirit, I begin to guard against selfishness and bitterness and forgetfulness. Here's what I do. I'm going to go out today and I'm going to go into my wife and to my kids, my home and to my family and to this community. And here's what's going to be on my mind. As I see Jonah's story ending so badly, I'm going to leave and I'm going to be sent from this place longing to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And I'm going to tell you something. You can't do that by yourself. It is only in and through Jesus. So you ready? Make your story about Jesus. Let go of your bitterness. And never forget all that God has done for you. Thank you again for checking out our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date on our services. If you'd like to give to support our ministry, you can do that at our website. That's connectchurchpf.com. Hope you enjoyed and have a great week.